Well, when I've got a, um, a, a slab of scripture that I'm trying to unpack for you, I'm always kind of digging into it, trying to find what are the common threads and to pull those out. And I want you to have a listen to these eight verses and see if you can hear a common thread. Okay. Right. <laughs> I can't cope without my pictures. Not working? No, no, I've got one. All right, well, James, James 4, verse 11, on your phones or Bibles. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. You know who you are. Whoever speaks evil against another or judges another speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of a law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. So who then are you to judge your neighbour? Come now you who say, that's it, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town, Ashburton, and spend a year there, oh my goodness, doing business and making money, maybe, Yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wishes, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. Do you see my point? The common thread. It seemed to me when I first looked at it, there's two quite separate things going on here. One is, don't be a judge or slander each other. And the other being, don't talk a big game. Don't boast. Don't be a self-promoter. But they do have one thing in common. They both are what, about what we say. What comes out of this thing. What comes out of our mouth. And I think this is James coming back to one of those big themes in his letter earlier, the damage that we can do to each other by what we say. Well, the first section about not judging each other is a bit tricky, if you look at it in more detail. Because James suggests that if we do judge each other, we have not just broken God's moral law, but we have put ourselves in God's place and judged his law as well. Now, it's one thing for me to judge Phil now and again, or quite often. It's for your own good, you understand. But it's quite another to judge the character of God and find it wanting. That's pretty strong. That's lightning bolt territory. You know, wear rubber boots and don't touch anything metal. The law, I think, that's most likely being talked about here is the second commandment the second great commandment that Jesus talked about, to love our neighbours as ourselves. That was the counsel he gave to us about how we should relate to each other. James seems to be saying that if we break this, then it's as if we've considered this commandment, judged it, found it to be of no value, and then just cast it aside. If we judge others, we are playing God. We are assuming his authority and who the heck are we to do that? That's first complexity. 
Second one is, all through the scriptures, we are exhorted to do exactly the opposite, to judge. Think about Paul urged the Corinthians to expel the man who had moved into an improper relationship with his mother. John in 1 John 4 urges us to test the spirits. And all of the New Testament writers rail against the false prophets, the false teachers. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. So the writers are repeatedly urging us to judge and to judge very carefully. And it's important. Well, I came across a simple way of understanding this tangle that's worth repeating. The starting point as James points out, is that the prerogative to judge is God the Father's alone. He's given that to the the head of the church, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus then delegates some of those functions to us, his church. The first one, the godly responsibility of discerning truth and error between godly teachers and false teachers. Really important. False teacher can lead you down a blind alley. Another delegation is the role of protecting the community and by association the reputation of the gospel, which is what was going on in Corinthians. Now, neither of those responsibilities give us the power to speak evil against each other, which is what James is railing about here. It's akin to slander. Or bad mouthing, and we need to avoid it, funny as it can be. When I look at myself and what I've done, I look at my motives, what I intended to happen. But when I look at you, I look at what you actually did, rather than what you might have intended to do. Are you the same? If I love you as I love myself, then I would give you a lot more of the benefit of the doubt. The same benefit that I give myself every other day and five times on Sundays, and very easily. I think we need to be careful with the motives that we put on people. Especially the people who do us harm. Love, true love, believes the best not the worst, and in fact none of us have utterly pure motives. It's just not possible, this side of the grave. An example is this guy. He's one of the most profound and respected Christian writers of the last hundred years. He's an English Anglican priest called John Stott. He's written tons of stuff. He's massively influential. I've got four of his books. I've read more. He died a decade ago at age 90. Now later in life, he began to publicly question the teaching that hell is an everlasting torment. He wondered if instead if hell was somewhere where people went and ceased to be. Well, did he cop it? One academic, rather than dealing with Stott's biblical and philosophical arguments, described him as an old man going soft in his old age. Well, we should be able to disagree, yet not speak evil of each other. As we used to say in football, sorry, rugby, play the ball, not the man. 
Another example was a super wealthy brethren businessman I heard of. And he'd been very active and generous in his church for years. And his pride and joy was his Mercedes, which, he had, which while he had been a businessman and an elder, no one had had any issue with. In midlife, he quit his business career and he became the unpaid pastor of the church. Now the car became an issue for some. Apparently it was quite wrong that a pastor should have such a flashy car. He hadn't changed. They had. Final example I want to share with you is um, there was a married woman in a church I used to pastor at and she worked with me as a key young adult leader. She was great. Now we used to meet in cafes to do our planning and have our pastoral chats and all the rest of it. Um, and part of my reason for doing so was, well, that was in public, so there could be no question that anything inappropriate was going on. Well, one day someone saw us and was quite concerned that we were dating and said so. You just can't win sometimes. But love believes the best, or at least it should aspire to believing the best. Well, as I said earlier, those other verses are about boasting. Now, when it talks about traveling to another town, that's a real marker of wealth. Because in those days, travel was tricky. And I don't know if you know it, but in, in films that are made in England, if someone's driving a Land Rover, that's apparently a signal that they're really wealthy. Because wealthy people drive Land Rovers. It's a bit like I, me dropping a comment about my Tesla. Yes, you too, too. Dropped a comment about my Tesla into a conversation. All of you, your eyebrows would twitch if I did that. James Boaster that he's quoting is talking a big game. Now I don't read this passage as being anti-planning. I think it's rather anti the presumption that everything is just going to turn out perfectly as we envisage it doing. Because life is inherently uncertain. And God may have very different ideas about our future than we do. We need to hold our, our hopes and our dreams really lightly. Our, and be careful of what we might think that God has told us. A pastor colleague of mine retired finally at age 70. And he and his wife had bought a camper van and they had these plans to go touring around the South Island. Good thing to do. Shortly afterwards, while gardening, this otherwise healthy, fit and trim man collapsed with a heart, massive heart attack. He'd never had any heart issues in his life and he died. I was so gutted for his wife. But as James said in verse 14, we are missed. An acquaintance of mine has a husband and kids one of whom is marrying next year and another was going to leave town for university in February. But out of nowhere, she's been diagnosed with terminal cancer. This is happening right now. And she'll likely die sometime in the first half of next year, she's been told. All of those plans and hopes that that family had for the future have been turned upside down. It's awful. Truly we are missed. That could happen to any of us. And finally, an accountant friend of mine 
was heavily invested in commercial property in the late 1980s. And you know where this is going. Then the property crash came, and he was wiped out. He narrowly avoided being bankrupted, and then his father died, who'd been a, a church elder. His father's best mate took the funeral service and gave my friend both barrels from the pulpit about what his, a disappointment his chasing the dollar and the high life had been to his sainted father. My friend's friends were outraged on his behalf, but my mate took it and restarted his dormant faith. God had other plans for him, and it was not to build a property empire. He learned that we need to hold on to our hopes and our dreams very lightly. Successful people, Christians included, are in great danger of believing our own publicity. It's all about us. So what we say will or won't happen, will or won't happen. But much of what happens to us, we've got no control over. An example I heard about recently is that if you are at the old end of your age bracket, then you will likely do better at sport. Did you know this? Say you're playing under 15 football, and you are just under 15 at the key date. Well, then you've got the better part of another year's uh, development in your coordination, in your uh, muscle mass, in your speed, your growth and maturity than somebody who's at the other end of the cycle. So it makes it much more likely that you will make representative teams and get the best of coaching. There's apparently a very good correlation between birth month and being a successful athlete. Then there's this guy, Bill Gates, who revolutionised the IT world and changed most of our lives, and clearly a brilliant man. However, he had the advantage of coming from a family that was very supportive of his early interest in computing. And they knew people who were able to get him time on computers, which were not widely accessible in the late 1960s. His parents in private school even let him use class time to follow his interest. He had some unique advantages, therefore, and an incredibly high IQ. So that combination of family encouragement and God-given gifts led him to build an empire that we know as Microsoft. Middle-aged men, and I include myself in this category, sadly, like me, are particularly prone to the error of overconfidence and thinking that we are invincible. Now, somewhere along the way, I picked up a bit of self-doubt, which is not crippling or paralyzing like a lot of self-doubt can be. It's just enough for me to prompt me to question my hopes, my dreams, my plans. I found it a really good thing. It's very helpful. I polish it every time I use it and I stick it back on the mantelpiece for the next time. A little self-doubt is good. A lot of self-doubt is not. Now another way to look at this passage is don't condemn others or exaggerate yourself. An old pastor of mine, John, was a huge help to me and I really valued the advice he gave me and he was a brilliant, brilliant teacher. 
However, John was not apparently a good trainer or mentor of his curates. He was quite rough on one in particular that I'll call Bob. Bob's son told me some of what his father had suffered at John's hands. And I shared with him how much that I had learned from John. Bob's son's reflection was, well, I guess we are all mottled canvases, aren't we? We're all capable of good and bad. Very true, but I thought very gracious of him to see it that way. Now, another example is this bloke on the right, Franklin Graham, who had evangelistic meetings here very recently. In the footsteps of his father, the bloke on the left, who came here in 1959 and 1969. And they say that there's an, on those two tours that he did back in the 50s and 60s, they think one in five people heard him preach in this country. There's an extraordinary number of people. Now, like many New Zealand church leaders, I was quite concerned about Franklin Graham coming because he's a strong partisan supporter of Donald Trump, including of Trump's Muslim immigration ban. He takes very polarising positions on a range of cultural war-type issues, and he's publicly questioned Barack Obama's Christian faith. I didn't think the association with him would be very helpful to the New Zealand church. Yet he also leads Samaritan's Purse, which helps kids in the two-thirds world, and each Christmas we gather those boxes for them, those shoe boxes. Also, I know of a group of people who went from a church in the east to hear him and seven of them went up for the first time to do some business with God. Now you don't know where that might lead but it was positive. Franklin Graham, like all of us, is a mottled canvas. Then there's you and me. We too are mottled canvases. Invariably we don't walk our own talk. We're not always our best selves. Maybe we speak evil of a Christian brother or sister or we just arrogantly assume that all our plans will come off. Whichever that applies to us, or maybe both, can I recommend good filters over this thing? That in the word, words of Bambi's most much-quoted mother, if we can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Likewise, by all means dream and plan, but know that life is transient, that we are missed. So don't be too cocky about where we might head. Amen. Thank you for your kind attention. Could the musicians please come up? Anyway, <laughs> how about we all stand up and sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel as much as you guys can remember, and uh, I guess you're following us. <laughs> At least it's a um, well-known one, so you guys might at least remember the chorus. 
come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here, until the Son of God Spring come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou wisdom from on high, and order all things far and nigh. To us the path of knowledge show And cause us in her ways to go Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel Shall come to thee, O strife and quarrels cease. Fill the whole world with heaven's peace. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to go out today, may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face, the rains fall soft upon your fields, and until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. Have a good week. <laughs>